Welcome to episode 5 of Daughters of Darkness, a podcast focusing on horror, exploitation, art house and cult cinema. I am your co-host for today, Kat Ellinger, and with me is... Sam Deegan. And we're going to continue our conversation today in the second episode focusing on the career of Polish director Andrzej Szulawski. Today's films we're going to look at are his first French film, The Most Important Thing, Love which is 1975, On the Silver Globe, 1977, and 1981's Possession. As I mentioned in the in the first episode, I'm not a particularly emotional person, which I think is why I've connected with Zhuavsky's films so much, but I've now reached the point where, and I don't, I don't think we mentioned this, but his first couple of films are all scored by Andrzej Korzynski. I mean, his sort of amazing Prague score for The Devil is certainly one of his best, but because he stayed in Poland and Zhuavsky was forced to relocate to France after he was banned for The Devil, uh, he got Georges Delarue to do the score for L'Importance de May and oh, literally God, <laughs> Oh my god. Any the so we we have to we have to play the main theme. But it's just such a lush cinematic score as well, in a very traditional sense in some ways. But it also as with most of Zhuavsky's films, it just encompasses the whole like soul of the piece. Um, well so yeah, I mean it's one of those horrible things where, I mean, so Delarue... Didn't you describe is, it as a Pavlovian response to hearing No, it's, I, I have this horrible response where, and I'm, I'm going to have to tell this story, but my friend Bill, who, who I've mentioned before, uh, has a podcast called Supporting Characters, and Daniel Bird, who we also mentioned in the last episode, was interviewed on supporting characters and for whatever reason bill decided to use the music from l'importance de may and like right before daniel's interview actually kicks in and just hearing the first 30 seconds of it i was like <laughs> i'm about to listen to this interview but i'm also kind of crying like what what is it's happening devastating, right now though. i think um, so well, we talk about the film to understand why it's so devastating but it's just actually in the last episode, I mentioned that before Zhuavsky started making his own films, he worked as an assistant, an assistant director to Andrzej Vida, and Vida contributed to Love at 30, which Truffaut also contributed to. It's an anthology film, and Truffaut's segment in Love at 30 is scored by Delarue. So I'm kind of wondering if maybe that's how Zhuavsky heard of him or... I don't know. I, I've never heard the story of how they met, but his score for this is absolutely perfect. And I mean, I have sort of a fierce loyalty to Korzynski, at least in terms of Zhuavsky scores, but this one, like, I, I can't even imagine Korzynski doing better. I'm talking of Truffaut. Um, there's a bit of a, a thing with yes. the, the title of this film, because it's actually taken yes, look, from a, a novel by Christopher Frank. Yes, um, which we couldn't the, the, find, and I don't think is translated into English. No, I looked for it, and and there's another book I look for um, later on as well, which I I struggled to find. Oh, La Femme Publique. Yeah, 
So, um, yeah, but the title, the t- so Christopher Frank, as English as his name sounds, is a French writer. He wrote this novel called Louis La Nuit Américaine, which happens to be the same name as a Truffaut film from 1973, which so, is completely unrelated. Totally to the text, unrelated, though, isn't it? So, and so Zhuavsky was forced to go with a different name, which I believe in the commentary track he says was he sort of seem randomly very fond suggested. Of it, does he? Well, he says it was randomly suggested by a producer. Like I guess they were all sitting around and talking, and someone said that the theme of the film is that the most important thing is to love, and a producer was like, "Yes, <laughs> Eureka." I think though I wanted to say just before we move on is um, even though it's probably not a very great title in english that most important thing love Um, it's a good title in french and it's but it's so um when you look at shirovsky's films they are all about love (laughs) you know all of them all of them and so maybe you know he wasn't particularly happy with it and maybe you know it's not the greatest title but i think it's very fitting um, I agree. Not just for this film, but just in the context of, of his entire career. Because it is the, that most important thing, or it becomes the most important thing for a lot of them, especially oh. here. And so something I feel like, if so if you're not, if you haven't seen all of Zhuavsky's films and you're not really sure where to start, this is one that I usually recommend to people because it's a little bit more accessible, but not to linger too long on the Delarue score, but he also scored Godard's film Le Mapree, which is the English title is Contempt. And I feel like if you watch a double feature of those two films, the scores alone, you'll just be laying on the floor crying. Like <laughs> that's what's gonna happen to you. Because <laughs> so it's good happy luck. hour over at Daughters of Darkness. It's all about the happy. <laughs> it's all about <laughs> sobbing into the ground right now. Merkwa. À être ensemble, puisque c'est pour être ensemble qu'on est là. C'est vous qui commencez. In the last episode, we mentioned that his first films tend to not be particularly linear, whereas this one is a lot more accessible. It sort of follows more of a melodramatic plot structure. So this photographer named Surveymont, who's played by, randomly played by the Italian, <laughs> Italian, oh. amazing, I, I feel like we'll have to Fabio go on Testi. and on about him I'm later. I'm sorry, but, I just have to say it. I've oh, been Fabio Testi. Fabio Testi. He, he is the best. But, or as Giovanni calls him, the Italian macho. <laughs> which he is, and it's totally true. But... So Fabio Testi sort of improbably plays this photographer, Survey, who mostly his job is to work for this sort of small-time mafia in Paris who sends him out to photograph pornography. And he goes on to this sort of softcore pornography shoot where it looks like a horror film, but it's essentially softcore porn but with a dead body in the middle of it isn't it with a dead body yeah with a dead body and blood everywhere which Um, sort of weirdly reminded me of tie me up tie me down how it starts off as this kind of explicit horror movie where 
a guy falls in love with the main actress and then things become crazy. But so I'm sort of wondering if Almodovar was influenced by this film. I'm kind of guessing he was, but hmm. at any rate, Survey is is on the set and he sees the main actress whose name is Nadine Chevalier played by the sublime Romy Schneider who won the first ever Cesar award for best actress for this role and she And rightfully so. She earned she's, it. She's amazing in it. So she's in the film she's supposed to be this actress in her early 30s who is really she's beautiful but she's really struggling and she's acting in these softcore porn films basically just to support herself and her husband Jacques the childlike husband yes he's like her a child, adorable he? adorable childlike husband he just collects by... movie posters and sits he in does. the apartment and he doesn't but, seem to have a job but it's Jacques Dutronc who if you don't know, he is a, a, a very attractive, adorable French pop singer who is... And Mr. F- Mr. Um, Mr. Francois Hardy. Francois Hardy, isn't he? Yes. And he's amazing in the role. I like. I don't know how Zhuavsky got the performance out of Dutronc that he did, but he's just fantastic. But so basically, Survey sees Nadine, falls in love with her quickly realizes that her situation is very complicated. She's married, but it's an unhappy marriage, one that she feels sort of guilted to stay in. And she kind of makes it clear that she's just desperate for someone to love her. And but she has, he there's turns... no intimacy in the marriage either, is there? That's important to... Well, their intimacy is very non-sexual, very sort of childlike. Yeah. Like, they sort of support each other, but, I mean, she supports him financially. And he makes these sort of horrible statements about how he saved her, and if it wasn't for him, she would be doing drugs and in hardcore porn. And in but a he way doesn't mind sending of, her out to, to do these... Right, movies. it's fine for her to do softcore porn, but... Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really, really sad. And instead of having an affair with her... Survey borrows money from the gangsters that he's working for and finances this theatrical production of Richard III with the sort of stipulation that they will give Nadine a part in the play. And she can't Along with Klaus Kinski. Along with fucking Klaus Kinski, (laughs) who is amazing in this film. If it wanted to get it, make it any more crazy... Well, yeah, the the international cast is like, okay, so imagine you're Zhuavsky, you're, you're kicked out of your home country, you're forced to leave your wife and child behind, you move to Paris, where, you know, you've, you've spent some time there, so it's not totally foreign, and you manage to find, and actually, we should mention, before he directed L'Importance et Demain, he managed to find work as a writer, doing some script treatments, and throughout his career i mean there's sort of a we'll talk yeah, about this later he, he on didn't wanna, he didn't he say he didn't want to make a film straight away he wanted to sort of get a feel for the place and and so he worked in other film related exactly but until I think, he sort of established himself there with people and, and yeah and, like and i think it's important to note that he's not just a director he's also a writer like we'll talk yeah later on about how there's this sort of gap in his career as a director but it's not because he was inactive he just spent more time writing which 
I feel like a major theme of these episodes is going to be my frustration that certain things are not available in English translation, and I don't think you can get a single one of Zhuazky's novels in English. But no, because he was a novelist as well, which is just, yeah. you know. Hopefully if we complain loudly enough, that will change at some point. <laughs> <laughs> to him. But... <laughs> To Anyone the listening world? to this podcast, he's, he any Polish speakers to... listening to this podcast, <laughs> just fucking translate them. Just <laughs> send it to us. <laughs> but so that's that's the core of the plot: is that surveys the photographer, falls in love with Nadine, gets her into this Richard the Third production, and her husband sort of realizes that. We realize he's in love, doesn't he? He, he realizes they're in love, and he realizes he's holding her back. And should we? Should we maybe talk about the end? Should we ruin the ending for people and maybe talk about that whole thing right now? Oh, I think we do have to talk about that whole thing. I can sort of assume that if you've made it this far and you're listening to several episodes on Zhuavsky, you've at least seen some of the films. If So if you haven't seen L'Importance de Demain, now is a really good time to pause the episode, go, go watch, watch the film... It. I mean, seriously, I will come to your house and kick you in the shins if you don't watch this film because it's one of my favorites that he's made. But also, we're about to ruin the plot for you. <laughs> so, pretty much what happens is Jacques realizes that Nadine is never going to leave him out of a sense of moral obligation. And he tries and, to make her leave as well, doesn't he? And there's, well, and, he's a total bastard and tries yeah, to make her leave on and purpose she still because he go. loves her. And she um, won't go, and she won't have an yeah. affair with Survey. Well, she tries, but Survey no. loves her so much that he won't ruin it by having an affair with no. her. So Jacques decides that out of a sort of supreme, and I feel sort of terrible saying this in a public forum, very romantic act, he kills himself. He goes to the store, buys a bunch of rat poison, and takes it in a public bathroom and kills himself so that they can be together. And it's not. It's not if it, it's very romantic in it in a traditional sense in that whole sort of doom lever sense in that whole thing but the actual rendering of it is anything but sentimental or romantic because he does it like you said in a public bathroom he swallows rat poison and is seen having a very painful death very uh, i is, mean it's supposed to be agonizing and and you know um i think Zhubavsky was asked why he chose that and i think his reason was because you could buy rat poison in france <laughs> So um, well, sure. I mean, you, you can know. buy it anywhere over the counter. I think there's more to it though, because he almost—it's like he's got to have a suffering death, and and that just makes it even worse. Because, like you said, he he does act like a bastard, and he tries to drive his wife away, but he's also like this child, and well, they all are. So... I think Zhuavsky says during the commentary that he sort of sees all three of these characters as being like children. Yeah. I think the interesting thing about the husband character is that in the original novel, and this is where Zhuowski sort of, yes. you know, played with it. He wasn't. He had like four 
pages and and he it was still a triangle but the husband had no mention but barely and so he builds him into this character that is it's about three people and you see him in a lot of scenes sort of stood in an actual triangle um with lots of gazing and lots of you know unspoken things but I those scenes that, are they're i mean they're, they're maybe hard. a little <laughs> i think it's so okay. hard to describe this because you need to see it but just you need to see it because they're more static than the cinematography in the third part of the night and the devil yeah. but they're no no less dynamic i mean it feels like someone's stabbing you in the stomach when you see some of these scenes i mean they're like, just they're just <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> I like I so I joked to Kat probably earlier this week that in the third episode of our podcast we have this sort of hilarious laughing fit when we talk about the devil's wedding night and I was like just you wait when we get when we get to L'Important Saint de May instead of having a laughing fit we're gonna have a crying fit <laughs> but it's but true we, I mean God, it's, no it is it's devastating and I think of all these films and they're all about loving in many different forms and an and unobtainable love or sacrifice for love or the pain of love. It's not just love. No one really gets a happy ending. Um, at all. I mean, they, you know, in, they do uh, in order. Yeah. But the guy has to die in the bathroom floor and Fabio Testi gets a real kick in. <laughs> it's not, they but, don't he's, but he's not off, an actual danger. No, but it's just, and it's, I, and the idea of sacrifice, the fact that this guy, this um, photographer who, who shoots porno, would just borrow money from loan sharks to invest it in. It's not even a normal, conventional um, setting of Richard III. It's done, <laughs> it's done in style. Not only is Klaus Kinski part of this theatre tr- uh, troupe that, that, that Romy Schneider gets brought into. Yes. Um, it's done in the style of Kurosawa, and they're it, wearing which Japanese is, armor. I, I feel like he's kind of making a joke. It's well, sort of, isn't it? is. and I, yeah, it's just, and you've got Klaus Kinski in the middle of it all acting completely bonkers. I oh, mean, wait, we should, we should finish talking about suicide. Yeah, we should, just to bring everyone so should, down again. Just know, to bring everyone down before we move <laughs> we... on to the wonder that is Klaus Kinski. Yes. And we'll definitely return to this as we go on, but he has a throughout his films, he has a number of characters who commit suicide, and he mentions in interviews that at least within cinema, he sees it as sort of an act of liberation, which yeah. is not unusual considering the fact that he was born during World War II, because there is like we could be here for three hours with me talking about this, but there's sort of a huge tradition not only of Holocaust survivors or let's call them battle survivors, but there are a lot of different groups and even civilians. There are a lot of different groups of people involved in the war who were either exposed to suicide or who committed suicide. And it's sort of a major, not only philosophical issue related to World War II, but definitely psychological. And yeah. I think a lot of the people who survived the war saw suicide as an act of liberation. 
and I think that Zhuavsky sort of sees it that way as well. No, and he does. He does talk about it as a liberating force, not saying that people should kill themselves, not at all. But when he talks about it, he doesn't take a moral stance. He talks about it in, in those terms, doesn't he, as a liberating force. If, if yeah. should you make that decision, as a, as a decision, not as a moral standpoint. Sure. Well, I think he makes it kind of symbolic. And so to to jump back to Antonin Artaud, who we talked about in the last episode because of the theater of cruelty that we think has influenced Jurovsky, I just wanted to read this quote. So Artaud pretty much, I mean, people sort of disagree on this on occasion, but Artaud at the end of his life was dying of cancer and either accidentally or on purpose killed himself with an overdose of chloral hydrate, which much he like... He did suffer from from mental issues, well, though, didn't he? Yes, his life he did. He was in and out of hospital and had quite a romantic sort of fascination with suicide. And... He did, but and he wrote about it a lot. So one of my favorite Artaud essays is... It's called Van Gogh, The Man Suicided by Society, and he writes all about the artist and suicide, but in 1925, he wrote this essay called On Suicide in uh, Le Disque Vert, which is a French data magazine. And he said something that I want to quote because I feel like it makes so much sense in terms of how Zhuavsky depicts suicide in his films. If I commit suicide, it will not be to destroy myself, but to put myself back together again. Suicide will be for me only one means of violently reconquering myself, of brutally invading my being, of anticipating the unpredictable approaches of God. By suicide, I will reintroduce my design in nature. I shall, for the first time, give things the shape of my will. And as sort of devastating as that is, I mean, this is sort of the first instance. I mean, you could argue that the story of triumphant love touches on these themes as well, his his very first short film. But, I mean, I think it's unusual to see an act of suicide in a film that is so proactive. I, and not yeah. to use that word in a weird way, but romantic and proactive. Which is, it makes it so... So much more gutting. Yeah, it's just, you just think, why? But you could have just left, but he can't. And um, it's just, it's just awful. <laughs> if I hear the theme now, I think I'm just going to. So I think on that note, need to move on to Klaus Kinski, who was brought into it. Um, when Jowski, uh talks about him in commentaries, he's quite funny. He's quite. He's not particularly diplomatic. He, he, I think he cited Klaus Kinski as being quite mad at the time. A total maniac. Um, and nobody wanted to work with him, but he, he respected him as an actor. Um, and, which and which I of, think briefly is yeah. another thing we should say, because I feel like Zhuavsky has this sort of history of working with people who were known to be difficult or people yeah. whose careers had sort of faded and... He worked with them. I guess maybe his personality was more overwhelming than theirs, and he sort yeah. of revitalized their careers. I mean, in terms yeah. of this film, both Klaus Kinski and Romy Schneider are great examples. Yeah. 
Um, so he brought him in. He um, and brought him in. I think the it was like a, a, a co-production. It was like French, German, was it Swiss as well? Um, yes. There was quite a lot of money in it, and the two German producers didn't want Klaus Kinski because Klaus Kinski had punched one of them out on a previous <laughs> film, and so <laughs> she asked him to did. make a deal with the producers that he would have this girl in in the film who who ended up paying a secretary um and she was the girlfriend of both of the producers so i don't know how that worked so he filmed the girl he got klaus kinski into the film and he filmed the girl and then he cut all her scenes out at the end and apparently which is genius sent a note to the producers saying don't ever blackmail a director because he will screw you so she didn't end up, but he he doesn't name the girl, but apparently. But she he talks about her rack, I think. Yeah, he he was impressed with her physical assets. Um, <laughs> which he which he, he said in a much so, nicer way than I just did. So he got Kinski in, and um, I think the thing in Jabowski films, you have people that are just acting completely over the top, just giving these very raw, hysterical, emotional performances. Um, maybe not so much in this film. It's quite restrained on that level. But then you get Klaus Kinski who does that anyway, and you put yes. him in a Richard the th- a play within a film as this sort of suave, sort of gangster style actor type. Who, well, he's also who, I think he's supposed to be. He's a producer, so but... yeah. But I yeah, but he also is naked in a pile of hookers at one point. I don't. Well, no, know. he's it's it's not that he's naked in a pile of hookers. It's that so the performance of Richard the Third does not go well, and there's a no. night where they're all out drinking. They're all out of the bar, right. and they're all kind of depressed. And these two guys. Two or three guys walk in with two girls. And it's not really clear if the girls are prostitutes or not, or they're just sort of hangers-on. But Klaus, but Klaus Kinski, has a bit of a punch-up. He beats he? the fucking shit out of these guys and then and takes, takes their girlfriends home. home and fucks them. It's the greatest thing I have maybe ever seen. It's like the ultimate <laughs> fuck you Klaus Kinski moment in a way that it just... I mean, so... If it turns you off that we've been talking about how sentimental this film is, yeah, you've also just keep got in that mind in the Klaus Kinski is you there. Have also, Klaus there's Kinski quite a lot in, of pornography. Yeah, you have Klaus Kinski in in strange Japanese armor um, with this. Uh, like we said, the camera works quite static, but when they film this, they show this theater, this play that's going on. The camera goes berserk. Totally um, berserk. There's also one more thing I need to mention about the theatre thing. Is Oh, is and the, the first coffin. Time we see a guy lying in a coffin. <laughs> but it's Jacques. So, yes. He's this not is dead. Yet a... It almost foreshadows his suicide, but this people lying in coffins, dead or not dead. Well, um, so they, they ask... They ask Jacques to lie in a coffin during rehearsal because they're not getting the performance out of Nadine that they want to get out of her. Yeah. So Jacques just is sort of lingering in the background and somebody says to him, hey, do you mind laying in here for a second? So that it's a little <laughs> bit more realistic for her. But again, and I don't want to keep bringing up too much that he has these sort of reoccurring visual tropes that I love, but people lying in coffins. Should, though, because it's the whole thing. It's like it's like an in-joke. It's why it becomes so personal, I think, because the more you watch, the more you attach and the more you recognise, and then it becomes sort of like a little nod with you. 
and the director that you start to notice these things. So I think we do, I, I, it probably sounds repetitive, but these things do come up so much throughout the film. Um, do we need to say anything about Klaus Kinski? Because <laughs> <laughs> all I have in my head now is that vision of him in that theatre and the camera is just going absolutely berserk and he's just giving this absolutely outrageously over-the-top rendition of Richard III. But moi, qui ne suis pas formé pour ces jeux folâtres. Moi, que la nature décevante a frustré de ses attraits. Moi, que la expédience au monde avant-terme difforme et achevée, tout au plus, à moitié finie, si estropiée et si bancale, que les chiens grognent sur mon passage. Moi, Whereas all I, the only I want to know why I that have... play flopped because he's amazing <laughs> in it. <laughs> well, also I think maybe we should mention. So we talked about it in the last episode with the devil, but as I mentioned there, Zhuavsky apparently went to the theater quite often, and he has representations of theater within his films, mm. though he never directed any. Like it's sort of a reoccurring theme. Um... I mean, in the devil there's Hamlet here, there's Richard III, and it just sort of continues on. I mean, it's definitely one of the biggest themes, the even only, bigger than people lying in coffins. And the other thing that we haven't mentioned is the use of the photography. So he uses photography, but he also uses like media, um, television screens, films within films, all these sort of things. Um, the actual idea of a photographer and that's like a mate in the use of the lens so you've got a camera filming another camera um it begins here and that turns up in fidelity later on specifically but in some of his other films you've got this idea that he uses media within media which is definitely a, as well as theater i think he liked to just keep mixing it up didn't he so which I is thought that was interesting. One of the best elements. And the and the other thing that I saw here, and I have no explanation for this, and I'd like to know, and you might know. So, <laughs> it's this idea, and I know a lot of it comes from French culture. Is you see a lot of restaurant scenes in this, and this is something that then reoccurs. But it's oh, not just so many restaurant, restaurant scenes. scenes. People meet in restaurants, people break up in restaurants and they get together in restaurants. But when they go and eat in restaurants, they generally don't eat. It's usually like a riotous act. He seems to break all convention of table manners. It's like the scene you said with Klaus Kinski when he gets in a fight. They're supposed to be in there having dinner, but nobody has dinner. They, they just play with the food and they go berserk. And it, it comes up here, but then it's from this point on, it seems to echo along this whole idea of people in restaurants and people not behaving in restaurants. Yeah, I mean, you see it. So there's earlier I talked about in the last episode, I talked about how there are scenes in his films where female characters smash glasses. Yeah. And there's a scene where Nadine and Jacques have sort of a confrontation about how love is not enough. And she smashes dishes on the ground. <laughs> and the cat, the waiter comes over like, what the fuck? But the same thing happens in Possession. Yeah. There are some, uh, yeah, even Possession has the restaurant sort of thing in it, doesn't it? 
It definitely does. It, it's another one of his reoccurring themes. So talking of reoccurring themes, um, one of the most, I mean, a lot of the films are easy to analyse as Zewaski films, apart from one, on, oh. on the Silver Globe, which I find an incredibly oh. difficult <laughs> film. <laughs> There are, like, themes in there that I can talk about, but obviously, um, I mean, I don't even know how we're going to explain the plot, because the plot is just, like, think I think I can kind of do it, because... It's like an epic... (laughs) Well, it's 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 in three parts, and it's based on two out of three novels that Zhuavsky's uncle, uh, Herzi Zhuavsky, wrote in the early 20th century so we should probably just describe the background and what happened with the production i think first um because the film was started in 1976 or 1977 but it wasn't actually finished until the late 80s and it wasn't technically ever really finished exactly so basically after so Zhuavsky's kicked out of Poland because of the devil. He's forced to move to France. He makes L'Important C'est Demain. It does so well and wins so many awards that the Polish government's like, well, maybe we maybe we thought too fast. Come back. Make another film. We'll give you some money. So he goes back and he decides that he wants to adapt his uncle's trilogy, which is called the Lunar Trilogy. And... He gets about 80% complete when they pretty much decide that, okay, it's it's a similar situation to The Devil where they, and in this case they, is the, at that point, brand new minister of culture, Janusz Wilhelmi, decides, okay, this is way too anti-Soviet. I'm going to cancel the production and order that everything, like literally everything, be destroyed. And Zhuavsky was devastated, returned to France, didn't make another film until 1981, which is the super angry and bitter possession. Yeah. And pretty much thanks to the cast and crew, which I'll talk about again in a little bit, but thanks to the cast and crew... They stored and preserved the film reels, and they stored a large number of props and costumes, which, if you haven't seen On a Silver Globe, it's just, I mean, it's so unique looking. I think one of the, at least recently, one of the sort of critical phrases that's been bandied about is someone said, we don't need... Yodorowsky's Dune because we have Zhuavsky's On the Silver Globe. I do want to talk about that in in a bit actually. But I don't Yeah. I don't think that's totally true, but it's no, also I don't like, no, it's, there is um yeah. It it's I I guess that's sort of an easy way of saying that this is a really unique and intellectual it's, sci-fi epic yeah. in a way in a way that like they just don't get made. I mean, 
So my, my biggest argument for why you should see on the Silver Globe, and to be fair, I think this is Zhuavsky's single most challenging film. I mean... It's really... Well, it's not finished for a start, and... Um, it's not finished, His but approach it's, was in the 80s to sort of do like a... Almost... Well, so, so what, yeah, what he did, so basically he was able to complete the film in 1988 and that same year he presented it at the Cannes Film Festival in France. But all but he, he does d- is he explains the scenes that should be there. Yes, he, so he films these sort of just, mundane yeah, city sequences, like city, isn't it? And... people walking around, people going up and down escalators. And he needs describing these like amazing yeah, things that are he going narrates, on. He narrates what's supposed to happen. So it's like you kind of can get the gist, but even even with those cutscenes, it's almost three hours where you are just sort of put through the ringer. Yeah. And so my my argument is basically I have a big problem with science fiction because I like a lot of literary science fiction because it, at least in my mind, it's what science fiction should be. It sort of challenges the contemporary notion of how we should exist in a society. Whereas a lot of cinematic science fiction, it's very sort of these mundane, dramatic yeah. plots that sort of cop off of mythic structures and just put this conventional story in space, well, can, which to can me we talk is about... not science fiction. No, and I totally agree with you. Um, I do think there was some interesting sci-fi made in the 70s, though. But Sure, um, but, but then but no, once I'm... Star Wars came out, it all yeah. died. Um, I'd like to just quickly talk about Dune, Frank Herbert's Dune. That was made Absolutely, in 1965. I love, now, I think I love it, um, book, Uncle, book was made at the turn of the century, so it predates June by 62 years. And it's as yeah. sweeping and as complicated and explores some of the same themes, which I thought was interesting. I know, I know you've read the books. Um, I've only read the first yeah. book, so um, but something from the worth film, explaining. From what you can gather from the film, there are the themes of prophecy, the themes yes. of duty. There are themes there are of very social similar structure. themes to Dune. Um, it's sci-fi becomes this like metaphysical um, medium to explore all these existential questions about the meaning of humanity, the meaning of love, the the meaning of you know, life and the meaning of religion and, and religion and power and all these both... things that you find in June. And and June is like cited yeah. as one of the most important sci-fi um, pieces of literature of contemporary times. And the fact that this novel that hardly anybody like I hadn't heard of it until I started researching for this. Hardly anyone in the sort of Western Europe or, or the Western sort of world has heard about covers these like sweeping massive grandiose themes in a very similar way and they both link into a sort of mythic sort of modern primitive sort of folklore thing as well with with these the idea of the the prophet and the coming of you know it's it's got all these sort of religious themes in there as well there's definitely some i'm not saying that june is in any way influenced by by the um novel but it's interesting like you said that most 
sci-fi film is very mundane or it's like let's go on a ship and something's going to get on the ship and I think in a literary sense you can explore these like really interesting deep questions and this does it in very much the way that June did and I think that Hodorowski would have attempted it or from the documentary that came out where he's talking about the film he would have made, it's a similar thing to Shuavsky's vision in a way, do you not think? I don't know if you've no. seen that documentary, but it's all this spiritual dimension to it. No, I, I definitely agree with that. And I think, so I, I guess I have a couple of responses. I mean, on one hand, Ursula Le Guin's Left Hand of Darkness covers kind of it so it's much shorter than either dune or the lunar trilogy but it covers similar territory and then it kind of criticizes religion criticizes sexuality slash romance and maybe tries to look at a new way for humans to exist but i think also something worth noting is stanislav lem who is a major science fiction writer happens to be Polish has influenced so many Western English speaking science fiction writers. And he has, I I guess, gone on record multiple times. Like you can find a bunch of quotes where he talks about how influenced he was by Herzi Zhuavsky's Lunar Trilogy. So I think it's sort of managed to trickle in because I, I think that, Frank Herbert probably had read some Lem. But I also think it's maybe sort of coincidental that they happen to cover similar ground. Yeah, it's I mean, similar ground. It's not it's not in any sort of deliberate sense whatsoever, but it's this using of science fiction to tell more than just a horror story or more than a story of invasion or or, you know, it's using science fiction is a way of exploring really deep sort of themes that you couldn't really explore in any other way than this complete fantasy universe I guess yeah which I think makes this I think I so think even that's just what makes talking... it so difficult because on the surface it looks yes, completely incomprehensible and you look at it it looks fucking amazing it's like the most mind-blowing thing I've ever seen. It's like a, it's like an existential crisis gothic Mad Max on acid with just bizarre tribal people and people. Oh, it's just the costumes and just everything. But the story is just so... Even with, like, with the bits cut out, it's so difficult to follow. And and But you can take these themes out. What you can take out of it is an emotion. You can take out this feeling that even though it seems to be so remote, actually it's not. Actually, it those those Jawaski themes are still there. They're just a bit more hidden. And that's what frustrated me trying to find them, I think. Because I knew they were there, but it's... Actually, this might be the only Jawaski film without a scene of someone breaking a glass. Yeah, because they don't own any. Um, they've replaced it with people being crucified on poles with their innards falling out. Which, those <laughs> scenes are amazing. And the people are quite happy about it as well. Ah! <laughs> 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 
film, a group of scientists travel from the Earth to the moon, and they're meant to only go there as sort of a, a brief exploration, but their ship crashes, so they're stranded, and one of the scientists records their attempts to survive with this sort of home video diary apparatus, so the, th the very first third, it's all sort of first person him explaining how they discover the atmosphere, where they decide to settle, they start to have children because there is one woman with them. So they have these sort of incestuous relationships. They have children. The logistics of it all, you just really don't want to go into in, in, in any much depth. No, you, you don't. You don't. But they're quite prolific in their attempts at populating this new earth, aren't they? Yes, and I think part of it is that the children grow extremely rapidly and they're s slightly smaller than normal humans. Yeah. Which is a little weird. But probably not and, the weirdest thing. That's probably one of the most normal well, things. In the I feel like that's what's so hard to explain is like, what's the weirdest thing that I could say right now? And it's, it's really kind of a crapshoot. I mean, so... Basically, the scientist who records the video diary, for whatever reason, outlives the other adult scientists, and his descendants, or they're not directly his descendants, but they sort of see him as this holy figure, and it's they call god. him the old man. Yeah. Yes, they see him as a god, and he really resents it. They desperately want answers, don't they? And um, a lot of... Uh, well, they so they demand that he speaks to them, and you just see him watching them through a camera, which is is quite. And he and he's just really frustrated because he wants to teach them about actual Earth, and they yeah. don't want to hear it. They just no. want to hear things that sort of feed in to their weird mystical beliefs, like so. Which was started think... by their mother, who's the first female um, scientist who. Her lover was killed on impact or shortly after impact. So she arrives yes. on the planet in a, in a, sa a state of grief um, and quickly goes tribal, doesn't she? Um, with the whole painting in there. Well, she goes a bit nuts, I think, because... And sort of maybe my understanding of this ties into me reading the novel, but she goes a bit nuts and she misses her lover and she just sort of loses touch with the world after he's gone. So she and creates this almost, it's like a belief system, isn't it? A, a, yes. a, a ritualistic belief system of painting their faces. And it's, it comes from her madness, which I thought was really interesting. Agreed. And basically the first segment sort of ends with them pressuring the old man into affirming their beliefs but really he just wants to go somewhere to die alone and he sends his video diary back to earth so it returns to earth and a scientist named Merrick decides I think based on the video diary at least in a loose sense he's heartbroken and has 
ended a relationship and he goes to the moon sort of in order to escape it. But he kind of, he kind of comes across the moon civilization decades later when and they're in full swing when he arrives aren't they (laughs) they are and and they've gotten almost more primitive and they're divided into these weird classes where the priests sort of rule everything they've been at war with the planet's native species who are called the Shern. And they're hideous. And they're these, these hideous yes, creature things. That are they're just... these horrible creatures who are this like shiny black, almost like PVC material. They have wings. They're telepathic. And they're no faces. absolutely terrifying. They're just horrible. They haven't got faces either, have they? They have not. They're absolutely horrible. And Merrick sort of leads... He decides that he's going to lead them, the the sort of Earth descendants, he's going to lead them against the Shern. But he also learns that they've been waiting for a messiah who's coming as foretold by this prophecy. And in the final act, Merrick has been victorious, but the people sort of... what What you were saying earlier about how how there are people crucified on these spikes that stand like 50 feet up in the air. Like he basically inadvertently becomes a Messiah. He becomes Jesus, doesn't he? He does. It's, it's Zhuavsky's most religious film. And as I said before, definitely his most difficult, like this is not for the faint of heart. (laughs) I think that I don't think religion is used in, in a literal sense though. Um, it, because he just uses the narrative to explore these questions of like dualism, like light and dark, love and cruelty, and there's various references made to that in in the. I mean, the the other thing that makes it very difficult, um, but I guess is in true theatre of cruelty tradition is there's not a lot of dialogue to explain apart from his voiceovers and. The, and a lot of the conversations that the people have are, are largely nonsensical in a way, aren't they? Um, they're oh, symbolic. Totally. They seem to have these symbolic conversations all the time about the meaning of things without any meaning. Um, and so that I thought that was that made it sort of quite difficult to connect to, quite frustrating. Um, so I don't think he uses religion in, in any traditional sense, but he uses it to explore these questions that he explores in a lot of his other films. He just does it here in a just a completely even more over the top than than usual. And and the most interesting thing I found about it was this this theme that comes out throughout the film and it's a long film, it's like two and a half hours long. Yeah, um, it's very it's this long. idea of of People that are looking for God, God is within man. Any sort of a God isn't like a metaphysical being. The God comes from man, and and so we have this with this idea of a prophet coming. That he's a human being. He's a man that's come from Earth because he's his girlfriend's dumped him basically, and he's yes. and he goes completely crazy by the time he gets to the the planet as well and but he becomes a god figure just like the guy with the camera george becomes a god figure but they're just people aren't they they're just normal people who are just given these sort of godlike godlike 
traits, which is, I thought I was really interesting. It sort of leads to some deep questions that you don't normally see in sci-fi. You don't see people crucified in sci-fi ever um, because they're a prophet or no. a martyr or a, or a living god. You just just never well, see that. Although there there are definitely overlapping themes in the Dune series because yeah. in the beginning of the second book, which basically takes place after he's kind of taken over the universe they talk about how the people start to hate him because he's responsible for millions of deaths. So, no, you don't get a scene where somebody's crucified on a beach, but you get these couple of chapters where you learn that there's been almost this holocaust because he's pushing for this fight over and over again. And there, I I, I almost feel like on a silver globe... It's it's almost impossible to talk about, or rather on the Silver Globe, it's almost impossible to talk about in less than three hours. I mean, there's just too much going on. It Well, yeah, and that's why everybody should watch it. <laughs> it's... Yes. I just... I think for me, I was dreading talking about this one because I felt it, but I didn't know how to put it into words. Oh, well, um, when I wrote about it for Diabolique, I almost had a full-on meltdown. I, I didn't know what to say. I didn't really know how to interpret certain things. And, I mean, that's it was a great experience, but it's a very challenging film. It, it's not even that. It's just so huge. And not just the, the visual nature of it, what it means, and all the things that you can find inside it. And I've seen it um, a few times now, and... I, I think it's definitely a film that, that, you know, needs repeated viewing because you find yes. new things or things that you I, perhaps didn't understand. Um, and honestly, seeing that restored version was revelatory. Like, I hope so much that sometime in the next year it gets released on Blu-ray because whether it's your favorite film or your least favorite film, it's... If you care at all about cinema, it's something that's so, so worth watching. Well, this is what I mean. It's not even just what the story means. It's the whole story of the film as well. I mean, it just takes on this huge... Um, it's, it's just... It's just huge, isn't it? The whole thing, the whole story about the director. It's enormous. And the, just, just the whole thing. It's like, how do you talk about that in half an hour? It's just, you know... You can't, and I mean, honestly, when I, so when I saw the restored films at the Lincoln Center, it was three days after Zhuavsky passed away, and I assumed that I would get emotional at some point, but, so the very first film, the, the very first couple of films passed, and they also screened Cosmos, his newest film, which we'll talk about much later, but I was kind of feeling like, okay, like, maybe... Maybe it's not going to be that much of an emotional thing. But the very last film they screened was on the Silver Globe. And the last shot of the restoration is Zhuavsky projected or he sort of reflected in this glass building. And he's still doing, we, we talked earlier about how the way he made up for the missing scenes was yeah. to narrate them 
over random shots of people doing normal things in Warsaw. But the very last shot is a shot of him reflected in this building, and he pretty much gives a concise history of how the film was banned, it was almost lost, but thanks to the efforts of the cast and crew, the costumes and set and the actual film reels were rescued. And he thanks everyone in such a way that like, I actually started to tear up. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> why, why is it with this film that is the most remote and the most difficult that I'm getting the most emotional? Like, but it is wildly emotional, even if it doesn't look, you know, you've got these strange Lovecraftian creatures roaming around with big sure. feather heads and, just these massive battle scenes with, you know, no narrative whatsoever, things blowing up and people and with like eyes painted. in a cave. Well, yeah, huge, can, uh, you know, it, there's, watch it for the, the for the pile of naked bodies writhing in orgy, you know, and loads of male full frontal as well, which is quite... Yeah, he is not, I mean, I feel like any, so this hasn't come up yet, but I've definitely encountered people who talk about how... Zhuavsky is misogynistic and he manipulates his actresses and honestly that makes me want to go if if you're one of the people who says that that makes me want to come to your house and uh, like actively set you and your house on fire <laughs> because it's so unfair and inaccurate yeah. like he does the same like he's one of the few directors who genuinely treats men and women in a similar context definitely I would agree with that Speaking of men and women and ways in which they're equal or at least equally miserable, I think it's sort of a natural transition to talk about Zhuavsky's sort of unfairly most famous film, which is Possession from 1981. Like we said earlier, he started on the Silver Globe in 76, 77. He made 80% of the film and then was once again totally fucked over by the Polish government, had his film banned, had to return to France. And for a couple of years, he, he didn't make any films because he was apparently so miserable. And... It sort of coincided with him going through a divorce with his first wife, who we talk about in the first episode, the actress Margarita Braunick, who acted in both The Third Part of the Night and The Devil. And it was a very complicated situation where she left him for someone else, there was his child to worry about, and I think all that sort of depression and rage and bitterness sort of resulted in possession. Well, which... he calls, um, in commentary, he refers to the period when he was back in Poland, so before he left, as being living in possession. Um, yeah. As, because the film is, is there are little, little autobiographical things that pop up and obviously things that fascinate him, but possession, even though it's a genre film, 
or an art house genre film. It's it's basically about a divorce. It just so happens that that the, of the estranged wife fucks an octopus, but we'll get to that in a minute. Oh yes, we will. <laughs> but so he weirdly wound up getting funding to make this film and wound up writing it in New York with a writer named Frederick Tooten, who is completely amazing. And if you want to know more about him, you should actually go to this other podcast called The Projection Booth. They have an episode on possession where they have a very lengthy interview, not only with Daniel Bird, who kind of talks more about his history and how he got involved with Zhuavsky, but there's also a fantastic interview with Frederick Tutin who talks about what it was like to work with Zhuavsky and has nothing but wonderful things to say. But so basically, the film is sort of returns to his pre L'Importance de May logic of being kind of kind of comprehensible but kind of non-linear and absurd it's got it's got elements of the absurd in other men sort of mundane plot and then and and a completely absurd plot hasn't it oh totally yes there's a lot of comedy which i think is what keeps this from being totally miserable but so there's this man named mark who's played by sam neill in one of his first major roles uh it's sort of implied that he's some kind of spy and he's returning home to West Germany from sort of non-disclosed work in either Eastern Germany or Eastern Europe on some sort of espionage mission. And when he gets home, he finds out that his wife, Anna, who's played by Isabella Adjani, wants to leave him for someone else. You can't just say you don't know. That's what you said on the phone. When will you know? I don't know. Do you want me to spend the night somewhere else? In a hotel or something? Do you want us to meet later on? We can talk more calmly. Do you... Do you need more time? What... What do you need? And... Basically, the central plot is that Mark wants Anna to come back to him. Anna makes it clear that she's dating this guy named Heinrich, who I... There are a few things in life I have been as excited about as I will be excited about talking about Heinrich in like 20 minutes, but (laughs) she's leaving him for this guy named Heinrich, but it's complicated because they have a son, Bob, and Mark, yes, oh, poor Bob. Mark wants Anna to come home, Anna is trying to stay away, but then it becomes clear, so Mark has a private detective follow Anna to see where she's going because he assumes she's going to Heinrich's but it soon becomes clear that she's evading both Heinrich and Mark and the private detective follows her to this sort of rundown apartment building and then he disappears and I mean if you haven't seen this movie by 2016 I who are you you should probably jump in the ocean and drown yourself. But I love the way all the way through this, you're just threatening to burn people's houses down. You want them to kick them in the shoes, I think, at some point. No, I will do it. That is how strongly I feel about all of this. But so if you haven't jumped in the ocean yet, 
Um, <laughs> I am probably not ruining the plot for you to say that it becomes clear that Anna is killing anyone who comes to the apartment building because she has this sort of octopus monster lover that she's hiding there. That's maybe all that we need to say about the plot. Yeah. I think people put a lot of readings into this film. And and there is a sort of political aspect to it, obviously. I mean, Zhuavsky used Berlin because it was a divided city. And, and it gives it a certain aesthetic and a certain style. And it's just perfect for the, for the film. But more than anything, it's the story of a divorce. It's the story of a breakup of a relationship. And I was saying to Sam earlier, um, you know, having been like many of us in relationships that are broken down or, or divorced or being in that situation, um, the way that Zhuavsky interprets it on screen is he has people act in very ridiculous ways that seem quite ridiculous when you watch it on screen. And I've seen that as a criticism of the film when characters do stupid things like put the shopping in the washing machine or scream in each other's faces. But when you're in that situation, when you're in a relationship that's breaking down and, and it hasn't quite come to its end, people do act in a ridiculous way, probably not in in as much of a ridiculous way as in that film, but they do. I don't know, I think they do. And so as I think more than any other film about breakups, especially breakups of toxic relationships or where one person still loves the other person and the emotions are running high, even though it's a completely absurd, absurd plot, the emotions there are like, you know, so true to life. They're so honest and real. And I think so, you know, in the canon of, Zhuavsky. it's he's i guess a very personal film to him because oh, he's it's, put but so, it's so much. personal there's scenes of you know when when mark he's anna's disappeared and he thinks she's gone to heimrich and he's just sobbing in his bed and the little boy bob is just left there neglected and it's just it's so, so sad. sad it's really sad and and so two-thirds of the film are are that are a barrage of just these hideously ugly emotions that occur when, you know, two people are trapped in a situation where they don't love each other anymore. Um, I think. Also, I think we should maybe talk about how we both came to this film for the first time, because this is, I think, for both of us, our introduction to Zhuavsky. Yeah. Um, Why don't you go first? Um, I I finally wanted to, uh, last thing though on that is um, Isabella Arjani called it um, she called it psychological pornography when Which she it saw it, <laughs> and I think that just perfectly sums it up and a lot of the other films that we're talking about. So for me, it's like my divorce film <laughs> to get too personal, but the way that I connected to it is because um, it is reminiscent of a time in my life when obviously I was going through a divorce with children and and in a situation not I wasn't fucking an octopus 
<laughs> and I didn't have a Heineken. Rick. But I was in a pretty ridiculous situation as things were breaking down. And so to me, it's it's a really personal film. As much as it is of the director, I think it's one of these strange films that you just have this really strong connection to. That that does like defies logic in a way. Because if you try and explain to people, they'll just be like, "What the fuck are you on about?" Um, anyone outside of the whole thing. So to me, my connection comes to it from a very personal level. I don't want to be too personal, but I just I watch this film and and I see sort of strange bits that happened in my life and that and the feeling of being i think with the character of anna there's that feeling of wanting to be free wanting to be liberated and and so you know through what she does and there's the scene in it the miscarriage scene the famous scene that everybody even people that haven't seen the film have seen that scene where she's in a subway just thrashing around on the floor and going absolutely berserk and vomiting up what looks like egg whites and just going absolutely hysterical. I just think that scene is the scene that I connect to the most. Um, I'd also like to add before we, we find out your little story, um, am I the only one who just thought the octopus fucking scenes were really weirdly erotic? No, I totally <laughs> agree with you, but I have, and I am not afraid, after all of the things I admitted in the first three episodes, I'm not afraid to publicly admit that I find people having sex with octopi weirdly erotic, so... <laughs> I'm not even going to go into why I think that, but... So. Yeah, I don't think we need to. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so, <laughs> moving on. So, on that horrible <laughs> note, so I, I feel like I had kind of two phases with this film. So, <clears throat> the first time I saw it, it was, I want to say, probably 2006, 2007. And I had been trying to see it for quite a long time and just kept striking out in terms of finding bootlegs but so around this time I had dropped out of grad school moved back to Philly and was in pretty much my first serious relationship that was ending and I just kept going to the video store and trying to find copies of possession and (laughs) They told me, they were like, yes, you know what? We do have it. And I was so excited until I fucking realized that they sent me home with the goddamn Neil Labute film, which which stars Gwyneth Paltrow and is basically, I shouldn't be laughing this much. It's basically, you know what? I don't even want to describe what it is other than to say that it's a fucking piece of shit and it's not the Zhuavsky movie. So I go home with this film that's, it's like in a a rental case. So there's no description on it. There's no artwork for me to immediately say this is the wrong film. So I quickly realized this is the fucking wrong film. And 
I angrily returned it to the video store because, so for anyone who's been to TLA in Philly, they pretty much no longer exist, but were quite an institution for a long time and they could get quite snobby about movies. So for them to be so snobby to me as somebody in my early 20s at that point about so many things and then to give me the wrong fucking possession <laughs> when I very clearly gave them the year of the film, the name of the director, which I'm sure I pronounced very incorrectly, but it wasn't Neil LeBute. <laughs> and how old was Gwyneth Paltrow in 1981? I don't know. Probably my age. <laughs> no, she probably wasn't even born, but... So, needless to say, that movie was horrible. I finally, probably three or four months later, found a bootleg, watched this film when my relationship was actually deteriorating. But then, and I'm not going to dwell on this for too long. I'm about this. <laughs> I'm laughing, well, you'll, it will be clear in a second why I'm laughing about it. <laughs> so, a couple years later, I recorded an EP like, I, I'm not a musician, but this was my first attempt. I recorded an EP, and I wound up using a lot of samples from Possession. So I wound up watching the movie probably five times a week for, like, three weeks, which I can assure you is not good for your emotional well-being. <laughs> but while I was doing this, I was pretty much dating Heinrich, <laughs> so, and that's why I'm laughing. He didn't end up in I, the bathroom, did he? Didn't. <laughs> no, he sadly is still alive. Oh. Which <laughs> I, I haven't said who he actually is, so I feel like it's okay to say sadly. Oh, but oh, I feel Heinrich. like we should maybe we should maybe talk about Heinrich because he. So in the last episode, I I mentioned that. Zhuavsky is pretty much the master of not only casting the best actors for all of his parts, but for having these really vibrant side characters yeah. in a way that in a way that they're characters that you keep thinking about long after the movie's over and you kind of wish that they had their own separate film. Especially if you've been dating them, I think. Especially <laughs> if you've been dating them. And so Heinrich is a really I think great sort of early example, actually something that I meant to talk about earlier. So the first time I really like other than Heinrich, the first time I really noticed one of Zhuavsky's amazing side characters. So in L'Important C'est Demain, uh, Survey has these scenes where he meets with his father and his father is this older guy who has his apartment so packed with books that probably the third or fourth time I watched the movie, I noticed that all of his kitchen cabinets, instead of being filled with dishes, are actually yes. filled with books. <laughs> well, okay, so I, I, briefly, I briefly wanted to talk about this actor. So he's this guy named Roger Blin, and I feel like he's such a good example of... Zhuavsky casting someone in a side role who's such a majorly important film presence. So Blaine was a French actor and director who pretty much discovered Samuel Beckett. I mean, he was the first person to stage Waiting for Godot in 1953, Endgame in 1957. 
and he did all kinds of theatrical productions, not just as a director, but as a producer, as an actor. And in terms of cinema, he acted in everything from Cocteau's Orfei to Clouseau's Le Corbeau, L'Age d'Or. He worked with Artaud actually quite a lot. He was an, an assistant to Jean Renoir. So it's just like, I feel like one of the things that makes Zhuavsky's films so watchable, like you could just kind of keep going with them, is all of these sort of like nooks and crannies of side characters. Yeah. And I think Heinrich <laughs> is in sort of a terrible way, but sort of an amazing way. Heinrich is sort of that icing on the side roll cake. You can hate me as much as you like. But it's you who wants to know things for me. So please make it possible. I'm suffering as much as you are. The fact that Anna did not inform you was harmful to everyone. But I'd always accept Anna's ways, as I think no one has a right to impose his will on anyone. I think the actual character as well, because Shravsky talked about him in that he was obviously based from his own experience with breaking up with his wife. So yeah, I'm going to so assume there the was real... some infidelity there or she left him for another man. And when he talks no, about... No, no, he's based on the guy that Malgrzada Bronick left him yeah, for. Yeah, he, and he, when he's asked about the character, he's like, I hate him. <laughs> and you just think, you know, that poor it's guy. It's kind of adorable. Yeah, but it is adorable. And, you know, but he does talk about this character as if he is the real life character whoever he's based on and he goes on about him being really smug and he's like a bit of a he's a guru yeah he's a fucking guru and he's a, just and a really <laughs> slick mover isn't he but he he doesn't it doesn't get him anywhere because he gets dumped for the fucking octopus <laughs> he does but and he, so heinz bennett who is a german actor who is cast as heinrich is fucking perfect like you can imagine him as everything from a pilates instructor to like <laughs> he's great isn't he he's just got this really he he has this sort of like impotent power in a way where he's able to control every situation like he beats the shit out of sam neill and it's very clear that he is able to sexually satisfy Anna in a way that her husband never is but he's ultimately more controlling there was one connection I, I thought was interesting was Isabella Arjani um, ah yes now she was like the darling of the French sort of the bourgeoisies Shumovsky always calls them um, you know and a very technically skilled actor she's absolutely amazing in it but um I, I don't know if this is true talking of polish directors was she not asked to play in Borovchek's and moral tales in the she, blow job. so she was supposed to be in the blowjob in the blow the job on the beach yeah yes yeah, she was supposed to be in the tide but she was so young that she wound up turning it down and I mean, it could go either way. I love the way Shurovsky sort of described her as having some sort of weird sexual magic, even at 15. Which is the most, like, Roman Polanski thing anyone has ever <laughs> said. Just like, but she is, like, the pouty mouth and the just... Um, I think Sophie Marceau, we'll go on to talk about, has got a very similar look. One of the things that... 
I think we've talked about a lot so far is the fact that Zhuavsky has this sort of insane knack for casting where he is just really able to get these amazing performances from people, but especially amazing physical performances. And I believe it's in an interview he gave when talking about Shamanka, which obviously is much later than Possession, but he mentions that he sort of chooses people who sometimes look really beautiful and sometimes look really ugly, which I think is definitely the case with Ajani. I mean... And Sophie Marceau crying face. Yes, when her face is all red and swollen and there's snot running down it, just no dignity whatsoever, just pure unbridled emotion. I think we, because we've already discussed the subway scene, but that's definitely a good example of that. And I think the way that she moves in that and contorts her body, there's definitely some sort of link to the first two films, The Devil and the Third Part of the Night. Um, Chewaski's wife, her movements in those films, in her hysterical scenes, seem to mirror... Oh, Johnny's performance here seemed to mirror that in some way. It's very deliberate and... and um, not very dignified at all. Spastic. Yes, yeah, spastic. Contorted. And, and she is such a beautiful actress, but then to see her like that, rolling on the floor, covered in egg yolk and, and whatever else, you know. And vomiting, vomiting on and herself. Just, yeah, it's... You have to wonder what he did to get that performance out of her. I mean, listening to the Possession commentary track is one of my... It's, it's one of my favorites out of any commentary track for any DVD or Blu-ray, but he gives her so much credit and I think really says that it came from her and it was almost an exorcism, like getting, getting something out of her that just needed to be out in the world and not in her anymore. But I think she was horrified with the result, she though, was. wasn't she? She wasn't yeah. happy. Did he make some reference to she tried to commit suicide with a, with a two millimeter? Yeah, well, he says, so when he's telling the story, and, and I think this could just be, you know, English is, I think, his third language. Uh, he says that she did commit suicide, which the first time I listened to it, I was so confused. Yeah. But, he basically what he's saying is that she attempted suicide in in the bathroom I think of her hotel room but just the cuts were really really shallow like I don't even necessarily think she needed stitches but she was just so horrified because he said she hadn't seen any of any of the film before its premiere like none of the dailies nothing um, I know he does sort of talk about her. I mean, he, he talks about her performance in, in sort of very complimentary terms, but I think he thought she was a bit of a diva, didn't he? Um, sure. That's the well, idea you get. I mean, she, she was. was. She was like French sort of cinematic aristocracy, wasn't she? So to get that, get yeah. her doing that was quite a feat. Um, talking of undignified, the um, giant condom octopus. Ah, yes.
So Carlo Rambaldi did the effects, and I don't think they had a lot of money, um, and he was given the spec, and apparently the first sort of octopus carnation he came up with, um, Schabowski describes it on his commentary as looking like a giant condom. Um, <laughs> which, um, after hearing him say that, on consequent viewings, that's all I can think of is a giant yeah, condom. It's hard not to see it <laughs> in any other way. Especially <laughs> it's when because, you see it with its face. <laughs> yeah, and because the material is so sort of shiny and almost latex looking, like it looks like a lubed up condom. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's what Shabaski really had in mind. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> not not that, you know, I mean, obviously earlier we were describing the scene as erotic, so we obviously weren't that turned off, <laughs> turned off by it. No, but, it um, works. Yeah, sadly the director was slightly. He, he doesn't seem to um, be very pleased about it, wasn't very pleased about it. Um, well, I think the interesting thing is he talks about how Rambaldi is, was used to working on these Hollywood films with where you had all this time to do effects and this huge budget. And then he comes over and is basically expected to do this creature on the fly. And I think Zhuavsky said he locked himself and his assistants in this hotel room. And they basically made the creature overnight and they used film stock. They used all these random things that I think would not certainly be used in a Hollywood effects lab, but it's spectacular. I mean, yeah, I think he says something like, I am Italian, I can do this. Yes. <laughs> he just disappeared for 12 hours and came up with that. I think it works. I think having the monster there as well is is what makes it so appealing to genre fans, um, even sure. though it's not technically a straight genre film, is it? No, not at all. And I think it sort of gets unfairly labelled a genre film and, and certainly part of that is not just hearsay from people who want to see it or genre fans who have seen it but also because of the whole video nasty debacle which is I mean because I'm British and I sort of I um I wasn't quite old enough for the early video nasty when it first kicked off but obviously John the, the the sort of late 80s was when I was getting in properly getting into horror films video nasties was still very much a thing and possession was banned and um you know you look at the title it's quite a standard title for a horror film and it was at a point where people would just religiously seek out any title that was on the nasties list you know and you'd have to get them from some applying to some dodgy advert in the back of um a fanzine or people would trade them round so, sure. you know, I think a lot of the bad rap that it got from its first time around was because people would think that they were going to get this pretty normal... Um, like a slasher film or yeah, something. Yeah, like a, I mean, 1981 was golden year of the slasher. You had a ridiculous amount of, you know, key slasher titles coming out in that year. And then in the, in the midst of it, you've got possession. And people generally rent the film and then think, what the fucking hell is this? You know, right. you've got like an hour of a married couple arguing, insanely arguing. So I think that didn't help the reputation. So it does get unfairly judged because of that and because of the video nasty label. And you look at other films that are on that list like Mardi Gras Massacre or, 
you know, Cannibal Ferox or whatever. It's just doesn't, it's like a fucking art house film. But yeah, it doesn't belong. <laughs> and I think it makes it really hard to appreciate the film for what it is when you go into it either not knowing anything about it and just hearing that it's a horror film or expecting a really gory, sort of silly horror film, or somehow worse, expecting it to just be a movie about a woman who fucks an octopus. Like, <laughs> all of those things are just not true. No, which is a shame. I think, um, I mean, I think it does, ha it's a double-edged sword because you do get people like me, um, you know, and a lot of people who, who didn't know anything about it who then got it on the back of the fact that it was a video nasty i think that's why sure. i actually bought so i'm saying people just got it because of that i think that's probably why i just you know looked for it and then i was you know amazed by it and there were people like that especially people like daniel bird and stephen thrower who i think came yes. to it through the same route and i think really were some of the first people to write about it for eyeball where they also got to interview Zhuavsky. I know, because they became so obsessed with the film that they, they actually tracked him down, didn't they, in Paris, for his relatives? Uh, yeah, I believe that... I'm not sure where, but I know Daniel tells this story. I, I, I don't think it's in the Possession commentary track. It's but on it the might... Shimanka. Yes, I it's think. on the Shimanka yeah. commentary track, that's right. But, yeah, I mean, and I think that's sort of the gateway for western film writers covering this then super obscure polish director who was not making genre films at all but just sort of happened to wander into that territory a little bit but i mean i'm glad because i don't really think we would i, I certainly wouldn't if it wasn't for eyeball i wouldn't have heard about possession and wouldn't have <laughs> wouldn't have my angry story about <laughs> video you wouldn't have had to have me... watched gwyneth <laughs> <laughs> fucking Neil Labute, god damn it. So before we wrap up, there's one final thing that we need to say, and I know this is something that annoys both of us because we've discussed it at length several times, is the fact that a lot of people see Possession, a lot of genre fans, they see Possession, they love Possession, and then they just don't ever watch another Shabaski film. No, and it's... To me, it just seems like the height of stupidity, <laughs> and I know I feel like I shouldn't say that because I know that so far throughout our Zhuavsky discussions, I've you know threatened people with violence a lot, but it just I don't understand why you would watch one film and say that it's amazing and it's such an unusual masterpiece, and then just not see any of the others, especially when they're becoming more and more available every year and some like, of the i mean some of them are more obscure but none of them have really been unobtainable sure i mean and especially people in the nasties era where you could get hold you could get hold of other other films you know if you trade in and whatever or you know when i saw the devil it was on like a fan subbed copy of it so you know probably not the best um not the best quality but you could you can and now obviously a lot of them have had releases so it's really no excuse. And if you don't watch all these films, Sam is going to kick you in the sea and, and burn, burn your, your house, house down. <laughs> so get ready for that. Make sure you have homeowner's insurance.
so that wraps up this part of our discussion of Andrzej Zhuavsky's films. And please tune back in two weeks for the continuation. I am still doing Zhuavsky essays for Diabolique. And something that I do think people should check out is totally unrelated. Uh, Film Movement has started a Kickstarter campaign to restore Kamikaze 89, a German film directed by Wolf Grimm, which it's this really weird sort of futuristic sci-fi police procedural just weird wonderful film starring the director Reiner Werner Fassbinder it's been pretty much lost I mean you could dig up really bad looking bootlegs which is how I first saw it but they're planning a restoration you should really contribute to the campaign Um, and if you just search for Kickstarter and Kamikaze 89 you will be able to find it Um, and we can also share it on our site and on our social media is there yeah. anything that you want to mention? Um, well, seconded on the campaign, obviously, and we'll put a link to that along with the with the podcast link. And then the only other thing is I did a couple of features for the latest issue of Screen Magazine in the UK. So after a year of waiting, <laughs> I did my interview with Pete Walker exploitation director has been published in screen and I did like a, a retrospective of his work and he did quite a funny and entertaining interview and I also did a retrospective on Hammer's Kiss of the Vampire so um, you know just urge everyone to check that out once again thank you for listening and as I said tune back in in two weeks to hear us say some more enthusiastic and possibly violence-threatening things about Zhavsky's later films. <laughs>